Before Def Leppard sold 25 million copies of Hysteria in 1987, even before Pyromania sold 10 million, they sold next to nothing of an album many devoted fans consider their best, High and Dry, released 40 years ago on July 11, 1981. High and Dry didn't earn platinum certification until more than a decade later, but it's where Def Leppard came of age and established their signature sound at the hands of producer Robert John Mutt Lang. And the rest is history. It all starts back in 1979 when an inexperienced but ambitious Def Leppard became part of the new wave of British heavy metal bands, even though they never really felt a particularly strong connection to that movement to release a record, the immensely collectible Def Leppard EP. Then, a little more than a year later, in March 1980, the young Sheffield, England-based quintet, at the time comprising Joe Elliott, guitarists Steve Clark and Pete Willis, Bassist Rick Sav Savage and drummer Rick Allen unleashed its first full-length album, On Through the Night. The following year, Def Leppard toured in support of major acts like ACDC, Judas Priest, and Sammy Hagar. But their album's initially impressive number 15 chart peak had been eclipsed within a month by Iron Maiden's self-titled debut, leaving Def Leppard playing second fiddle to the London rock press's hometown darlings. Nevertheless, the band was about to turn a corner as a result of a decision by Def Leppard's powerful manager, Pete Mensch, who also handled ACDC, and was able to convince Highway to Hell and Back in Black producer Lang to sign on for his client's next album, with work due to begin in March of 1981. In producer Mutt Lang, as with pretty much everybody else Lang ever worked with, Def Leppard encountered an exacting taskmaster, willing to do whatever it took to elevate their game and get them to the major leagues. And even though his perfectionism nearly broke the band's spirit, they eventually emerged triumphant. Joe Elliott talked in an interview posted on the band's website, where all of these clips are posted actually, about working with Lang. The difference between Tom Allen, who was a fantastic producer, and I will not say a bad word against him, but a totally different way of working, and say Mutt Lang is, it was the discipline. Tom was employed by the label to capture what we were, which was a young teenage rock band, capture the energy that they have, and let's see where it goes. With Mutt, it was a totally different kind of discipline, if you like. You know, he came in and he's like, well, I'm not just going to capture what you do and see if it's a bit better than the first record. We're going to actually create this record and make sure that it is better than the first album. And it's punchier and it's more mature. It's more professional sounding. It's more, you know, going to push you performance-wise. He's really, really pushed us hard to the point where sometimes I'd be like going, I can't do what you're asking me to do. You know, it's I'm trying to like get Tom Waits to sing like, a, you know, an opera singer or something. And it was just really hard for me to get my head around it a lot of the time. But eventually he started to sink in what he was doing. And he got performances out of everybody in the band that we wouldn't have got under our own steam. So it was almost like army discipline, really. But I've said many a time that I'd much rather dislike the the making of a record if I can enjoy listening to it later than have a really good time recording it, but then wish we'd tried a little harder to make it better. We were at that point in our career where we were still learning how to work through new songs. We'd never played any of these songs ever before we recorded them in the studio, so it was a totally different headspace to On Through the Night, where we'd been playing those songs on stage all over the world, pretty much, and we had to start all over again. Mutt Lang was a great leader, and we were just a bunch of young kids. You've got to remember, Rick Allen was still only 17 years old. I think I was 21. Everybody else was like 18 or 19. We were rudderless. We really were, and he, he gave us a direction, which is what we desperately needed. Now, with Mutt Lang at the helm... 
As we've come to expect with any of his work, it's impeccably crafted hard rock that came to High and Dry. A perfect balance between brawn and beauty with songs like Let It Go, High and Dry, Saturday Night and You Got Me Running, meshing riffs and melodies, rhythm and lead guitars, with an overall sound that heavy music had rarely heard prior to that. If you have to choose one word, the songs had class. That meant bridging the demographic gap to reach a female audience that in 1981 had remained largely out of reach for heavy metal acts. As always, that came down to the songwriting. The songwriting process for the whole album was extremely different to the first record. The first album was just songs that we'd been playing live for a good 18 months or so. With the second album, we were starting from scratch with absolutely no material, and the little material we did have, we dissected it piece by piece with Mutt Lang, which is something we'd never done before, so it was a total learning curve for the band. We'd come in with a song like When the Rain Falls, for example, which was a kind of a real up-tempo rocker and Mutt said we're going to slow this right down not to ballad speed but like to mid-tempo speed and those lyrics have got to go and that turned into a song called Let It Go which happened to be track one of the album Bring On The Heartbreak started off as a song called A Certain Heartache and it just didn't sound as, as punchy but melody wise and lyric wise it was pretty similar backing track wise it was almost identical so the, the songwriting process just kind of went through uh, peaks and troughs really we came in with some songs that were almost finished we came in with some, some songs that were, we thought were finished and Mutt would say no it's not and he would take it and tear it to pieces and put it back together again so it was the whole album was a learning curve for us but um, as we were listening to it progress we were obviously noticing that it was so much more punchy than the first album. Now, Elliot mentions ballad tempo there. At that time, hard rock acts were not doing what is now called the requisite power ballad. For this album, it was bringing on the heartbreak. It was a hit, but not until several years later in a slightly remixed form. And again, we call it a requisite power ballad thing now, especially in the 80s, but bringing on the heartbreak actually played a part in making the power ballad a thing. It was still outside the box for Def Leppard at the time. I think it's it's more mature than our years were. We were starting to write songs that sounded more mature, I suppose, more like every other band. They weren't naive anymore. It's a standout song by virtue of the fact that it's it's still a crowd favourite all these years later. We still play it. It goes down great. And by virtue of the fact that we tag on Switch 625, it's a great way to turn a three-minute pop song into a six-minute rock epic, you know. I'd say it's probably the standout track for sure. Now, Bringing On The Heartbreak did become a hit, one of the biggest and most enduring of the band's career, but it almost didn't happen at all because it was almost too much for Joe Elliott to handle at the time because he was still a quote-unquote baby singer. For me personally, the hardest one was Bringing On The Heartbreak because Mutt had spotted probably way in front of us that that was the song on the album that was probably going to bring some attention to the band you know we had great rockers with things like let it go and 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 the title track and hit and run songs that over the last 20 years have fleeted in and out of our set still in fact let it go still gets played all the time but bring on the heartbreak i think he recognized with it being a ballad probably that it would get airplay if it was deemed good enough so he really put me through the ringer because it's all about the vocal and I was just this young kid that just wanted to get on with it and get it done and he's like no it's got to be better than that and he pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where I kind of broke and I said I can't do this and I just kind of threw my headphones down and had a a hissy fit and pissed off out of the studio and I went next door to uh, Battery 2 where Whitesnake were recording and uh, bumped into David Coverdale and had the misfortune of watching him do a, a vocal in one take and thought well 
I'm wasting my time here. But um, David was fantastic. He said, come in and, you know, me him and John Lord sat around the piano and we discussed the um, ins and outs of what it's like to be a singer. And he was explaining how he felt the same way when he first joined Deep Purple. And it's something that you rise above eventually and you just have to get through it. And that talk and a bottle of brandy <laughs> kind of sorted out my head. So the next day I went, uh, next day I went in the studio with a totally much better attitude, I must say. And I said to him, I'm sorry about yesterday. Um, you know, let's go for it. And, in, you know, with, with kind of ironing out my head, which is what that little conversation with David and a, a bottle of Cavozier did, um, I went back in there with a much better positive attitude, if you like. You know, even though it's a hit now, and even though Def Leppard is so huge now, you have to remember that at the time, they're creating music out of thin air. So they haven't got any confidence, really, that any of this stuff is going to be liked by anybody. So that was a tough one for Joe Elliott. Others came a little bit easier, if not for Elliott to sing, at least in the songwriting process. The song on Through the Night, it was kind of a fashionable thing to have a song on your album that would previously been an album title. Notably, ACDC had a song called If You Want Blood on highway to hell that had been the title of their live album the year before and that's kind of just one of those things that was in our mind we were working with mutt lang who had produced that album highway to hell in the same studio battery studios in wilsdon in london and he was just talking to us one day and he said there's no song on your first album called on through the night is there and we're like no no he goes it's a good title and we had a bit of music knocking around that needed a chorus and all of a sudden we started singing over the top of it it's like there you go we've got a chorus for this song it was literally that simple and that song being such a good rocker and based on the sonic definitions of the early 80s Def Leppard still very much a metal band in spite of bringing on the heartbreak and headbanging anthems like another hit and run on through the night and no 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 and the instrumental switch 625 showed enough to keep the band in the conversation with metal peers like Iron Maiden Saxon and Diamond Head had they chosen to Joe Elliott talked about some of his other faves on the album. We played the track on through the night when we did Viva Hysteria in Vegas in 2013, and that was great to play live. We'd never, ever done it. It was Phil Collins' idea, and he didn't even play on the original. I really like You Got Me Running off, I think it's track one, side two. It always reminded me of Kiss for some reason. It's just got that block chord commerciality about it. But um, I still really enjoy doing Let It Go Live. Uh, Hit and Run's a fun song to do. It's really difficult to pick one, but I suppose I'd have to pick Bring on the Heartbreak because it shows a kind of a maturity. Now, just before we get to the reception the album got upon its release, if the cover of the album reminds you a bit of a Pink Floyd cover, there's a good reason for that. Hypnosis, who'd done all these sleeves that we grew up looking at all our teenage years, from Pink Floyd to Led Zeppelin to UFO. I mean, the hypnosis sleeves were everywhere, and we really, really wanted to work with hypnosis, and we didn't really get much of an argument from the record label. And in fact, Peter Mensch, who was managing the band at the time, was quite vocal in our favor that we should work with hypnosis. So we got to work with a guy called Storm Thurgson, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but um, he was the guy that came up with the idea, and we just basically looked at a bunch of designs that he'd kind of come up with. You know, I've heard many rumors that High and Dry was a, I think it was a reject of Umma Gumma. 
by Pink Floyd, but it worked great for us, you know, high and dry. There was like this empty swimming pool. It was all a kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of nod towards that, really. But that's the way it goes. There's, there's hundreds of stories through the history of rock and roll of album sleeves that are iconic once they get used, but somebody says, oh, I turned that down 10 years ago. And that's the story that we heard about the sleeve was that it was rejected by Pink Floyd for the Oma Gummer album, but we dug it. So High and Dry is released on July 11th, 1981, but it wasn't a hit right out of the box, partly because it got almost no promotional push from the label. There was no budget. We were still a band that the record label were like hedging their bets on. They didn't start doing anything that we would notice until Pyromania. We started seeing full-page ads and stuff like that. There was very little going on. You have to remember that the High and Dry album was kind of like treading water when you look back. It looked like progress at the time, and it kind of was because it was a much better record than On Through the Night. But because the tours weren't that massive, they weren't that long, and it was 1981, and it was just a little weird. I don't remember an ad. I don't remember anything about any promotion. The the only promotion was us being out on the road, trying to do what we can, obviously going in and out of the odd radio station to talk about it. But when you're an unknown band, not many radio stations want to talk to you. So it was in pockets. There'd be certain areas like maybe Portland, Oregon, where we were quite popular. There'd be one DJ that would want to do an interview, but we could be somewhere else and they wouldn't want to do it. I remember I did one interview on the 1981 tour. We were driving to the studio and we had this the radio station on where they were going to do the interview and it was like a scene out one of these comedy films where they said there's this band coming in we're going to interview soon a three-piece band from germany called death leopard it's like where did they get that from you know i mean that's how unknown we were upon its release the album reached a respectable number 51 in the u.s but in their homeland in the uk sales fell short of their debut and in canada i couldn't even find a record of what happened up here as far as the charts went and the sales still high and dry is one of Def leopard's most important albums as joe elliott explains it's one part of our story it's a building block in the whole process of what Def leopard has become it was a very important one at the time when you look back at it now there are bits of it that hit and there are bits of it that missed but generally speaking as as a i think they call it the sophomore album whatever the second album it was the start of where we were going to go we got a lot of stuff out of our system on the first album because it's what we've been playing live if somebody had said to us we want to take this song to pieces slow it down speed it up we'd have been very resistant but because with high and dry we were starting from scratch we were open-minded and we were so happy to be working with a producer like mutt lang he was like a teacher and we wanted to learn from him so we were all moldable it was like we were a big piece of play-doh and he was this like rock guru and we were prepared to get in the pit with him and, and wrestle it out you know because we did have a lot of arguments and fights about direction but we did take on board what he was trying to do which was make us a better band so my lasting memories are it was an enormous learning curve for what would come with pyromania by the time we started doing pyromania which was a, a, a year later what we'd gone through a year before recording high and dry had sunk in and we'd realized through people saying wow you sound so much better on this record than you did on the first etc that it was worth all the the effort that you put in it was a great learning curve for where we were going to go not only did high and dry set the table for what was to come for def leppard but it's also one of the band's best which is why here on the 40th anniversary of its release we are inducting high and dry into the drive rock of fame i'm kelly parker